Hi, I'm Mike Duran. And hi, I'm Peter Rao. Welcome back to Counterbalance. For those of you who've been away for the last six months, or actually, we've been away for the last six or eight months, what happened, uh, you're asking? Why is Counterbalance back in your inbox? We, as you know, are the fastest growing podcast in America. Peter, uh, you, you, you know that's the case. And um, we blew a capacitor uh, because we were growing so fast that the audience got so big that our hardware couldn't handle it. So we had to rebuild. We rebuilt. Unfortunately, in the meantime, we've lost, uh, we've lost Marshall. Uh, Marshall was the co-host, and uh, he's gone on to other projects. He's going to be doing projects here at, at the Hudson Institute. He has his own podcast that he's going to be starting. And I have a new, ho- new co-host, which is you, uh, Peter. Hello. It's great to be here. I think Marshall's fame and glory associated with the fastest-growing podcast in America put him off to greener pastures, but it's a delight to be his stand-in replacement and permanent new co-host alongside Mike Duran. Uh, so, Peter, let me just tell the, the world a little bit about you. Um, you are the director of Hudson's European Center. You are fluent in German. You're an expert on European politics. What else do they need to know about you? That's it. I'm now the co-host of the fastest growing uh, podcast in America and uh, the equivalent of the Ron DeSantis Twitter launch uh, presidential campaign. <laughs> too much for the interwebs to handle. <laughs> it's too, too much for, yeah, no, we're, 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 we're going to, we're much better than, uh, than Ron DeSantis' launch. It was just, uh, uh, it wasn't our inability to handle the, the machinery. The machinery just couldn't handle the audience. So anyway, Peter, I just got back from Saudi Arabia, which was uh, an incredibly interesting trip. I'd love to talk to you about it. Well, what took you to Saudi Arabia? What did you see? What did you learn? I I was actually blown away. I hadn't been to Saudi Arabia uh, in about three years, since just before COVID. And the country has changed radically in a very short period of time. We've heard this from a lot of people, but I saw it with my own eyes and I was shocked. I've never, I don't think I've ever seen a country change that quickly. Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, uh, he's made a decision to move the country in a, in a kind of um, nationalist direction. The way the the phrase that um, the phrase that I have running through my head is, it used to be a religion with a country, and now it's a country with a religion. They are building. They're they're telling their own national story rather than the the story of Islam, and they are trying to build their national infrastructure very much talking about it in those terms this this kind of thing you can't fake i mean the 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 kind of excitement that people have about it when you talk to young business people and and they they talk about what's happening in the country and what they're doing you can't fake that that's not something that you know government puts out you, you know what it's like when you go to countries and and there's a there's an official line, and people repeat the, the official line. You can feel that, and you can also feel when you're talking to a young guy running a restaurant, and you, and you feel the excitement and what he's doing. Does that actually manifest itself in changes in Saudi foreign policy? Because I think as Americans, we often ideologize foreign policy, or at least ascribe ideological motives to foreign policy decision makers abroad. 
I myself am a product of the 9-11 generation. And I remember after 9-11, just to take this example, I heard repeatedly that in the Middle East, Persian Shia Iran, for example, would never collaborate in any way with, with Sunni Arab, predominantly Al-Qaeda. And uh, because of, I think, that framing, in part, we oftentimes looked at, in particular, Saudi Arabia as the custodian of the two holy places, as a Wahhabi Islamist society through the lens of religion. And we thought religion is the answer to how to understand Saudi Arabia. You're suggesting now nationalism matters more, but setting all that aside, does it actually manifest itself in, in, in their foreign policy? Is that an accurate way to read them or is it still the agglomeration of power, which kind of traditionally realists would say matters most in foreign policy? Oh, uh, no, I think it's having a big impact on foreign policy. Mohammed bin Salman is young. Yeah, he's in his mid thirties and, uh, his population is overwhelmingly young. So I, I don't know what percentage that 30, 35, 36, 40 percent is young people. Um, and he's thinking, how do I build my country so that my young people are have jobs? That's the thing that you where I think uh, my, my impression is that he's extremely popular among the young. You know, he's lifted some of the the religious um, control over social life. Women can drive. Men and women can uh, socialize together. They can work together. I went into a one business place where young men and women are all sitting together in cubicles uh, working on a publication uh, together. And uh, something that you wouldn't have seen uh, just a few years ago. Uh, I talked to them uh, about what they were doing. Very, very excited about it. So publication that's going out to, to the Arab world. But I think that sense of uh, building the national infrastructure in order to accommodate the needs of the nation is having a huge impact. And it's having an impact in the way Saudi Arabia is dealing with the United States. They're starting to hedge toward China. And uh, if we don't get our heads around this much more quickly, we're, we're going to end up losing Saudi Arabia. Well, even the most casual observer of foreign policy doesn't take a lot of clairvoyance would notice that the progressive attitude towards Saudi Arabia is pretty hostile. The progressivism that's in the DNA of the Biden administration, what accounts for that hostility towards Saudi or is that overstating? I, I know. I think the progressives are very hostile to Saudi Arabia. I think you can under, you can explain it uh, almost uh, through social psychology, but I can also explain it towards strategy. Let me let me start with strategy, and then I'll go to social psychology later. The progressive foreign policy set up by Obama is reaching out to Iran, trying to find a regional accommodation with Iran. That means downgrading our allies, in particular Saudi Arabia and Israel, and that's explicitly part of the uh, part of the agenda um, that Obama's you know Obama started, and Biden is following the same playbook. The Saudis feel it. That they that they have been downgraded with regard to Iran it has direct implications with regard to their national security, uh, because they you know, the story that they always tell is that they they were hit in 2019 uh, their Abqaiq refinery was hit by Iranian uh, drones, and uh, the United States did not respond. I mean, the United States is not going to defend them against Iran, attacks from Iran. They have to find ways to protect their national territory. Uh, one of the ways they're doing it was by outreach to Iran. They had this deal brokered between 
that China brokered between them and Iran. But they would prefer, I think strongly prefer, to have an agreement with the United States on their security and to build their security within an American framework. But the Americans have moved significantly in the direction of Iran. Uh, and so that leaves them exposed in, in, in a variety of ways. And I, I think they're not racing to go move into the Chinese orbit. The Chinese, the Chinese are not there as an option, as a kind of one-stop shop to take care of all their security concerns. But the Chinese are there to offer a lot of help, including influence in, in Tehran to moderate the Iranians. So if they can't protect themselves from the Iranians through the American channel, they're going to go to the Chinese channel. And I think it's that way on everything across the board. If they're trying to build an industry in their country, they're going to to give the United States first right of refusal. Do you want to help us with this? And if the United States doesn't want to help, then they'll go to the Chinese. I mean, it may be that I'm being propagandized and worked over, but... I don't think it, that's the case, given that I've heard this also in private settings from Democratic Party stalwarts and administration officials that they view the Chinese, should we call it diplomatic intervention in the region, or they're coming in on political matters in a major league way by finalizing this Saudi-Iranian rapprochement as a not-so-bad thing. And in a way, it represents this theory of the case for the Middle East applied to the global stage. It's that you can build a regional concert, in this case, a global concert, by looking uh, for ways to bring the Chinese in as an interested stakeholder to adopt the phrase that applies to uh, Chinese theory of yesteryear, but in a way, I think is still present. Um, Do you think that's true? I do. I think the administration was not all that troubled by this. But part of it is that in talking to people in government and, and around government, around the Biden administration, I think part of their answer is that, well, as, as one person working in the, in the government said to me, oh, the Saudis, they're like your needy girlfriend. No matter what you do, it, there's a, they're always going to be paranoid and it's not, not going to be enough. And I think that that's um, rather dismissive um, and doesn't, doesn't examine the extent to which the United States has, has moved toward the Iranians and built up the Iranians and refused to deter the Iranians, whether it's deterring them on their nuclear program or deterring them on missiles and drones. So at base, is it fair to say that the American arrangement with Saudi Arabia dating all the way back to when the U.S. became the major player in the region is that the U.S. is to solve or at least manage regional security challenges and in return the Saudis stabilize international energy markets? Yeah, I mean, the oil for security, that was that, 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 that was a shorthand for what the relationship was all about. That was probably always an oversimplification. I can make it a lot more complex. But that transaction is at the heart of the, uh, uh, of the relationship. Now, the relationship is changing um, considerably. The world is changing. But the, what the Saudis and all of our allies, not just the Saudis, it's also the Israelis, any of our allies in the region, the number one thing they want from us is security. That, they want our hard power. All this notion about soft power, it's not what they want. They want the hard power. So the Biden administration's complaints about Saudi behavior within the OPEC plus framework is 
going to be dismissed so long as we're unwilling to take our responsibility on the Iran, Yemen, and other files seriously? Is that? I th- I, yeah, I think 100%. And, but, but we also have to realize what we did under the Obama administration. We put Iran and Russia, the, the Iranian-Russian alliance, which is now having an impact in your part of the world, in Ukraine, we allowed that to develop in Syria unmolested. And and it, 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 we didn't simply allow it. I, I, I don't. I don't think we want to go into all the, the gory details about it. But the graphic detail. The, the graph. The graphic. It was. This is a graphic podcast. But they. The Obama administration drew a ring around Syria and let the it, it kept out the Turks, uh, minimized the Israeli role, and allowed the Russians and this and the Iranians to build up the Assad regime. And so the Russians and the Iranians made a massive intervention back in, back in 2015. The Obama administration didn't see any threat to U.S. national security. Now we find in, in Ukraine, the Israelis have limitations on what they will do for the Ukrainians because they have Russia on their northern border. The Turks have a the Turks have a um, a, a complex relationship with the Russians because they have the Russians on their northern border and their southern border, and they have to think about them. Uh, the Saudis are saying the same thing. You know, we we the Russians are part of the part of the world uh, in which we are operating. We can't simply tell them to get uh, to get lost. It was the United States who invited the Russians in, uh, if you will, or who was willing to accept them, and the and the Iranians as valid regional interlocutors who are going to be partners, this concert system for stabilizing the region. So we can't turn back to the, to our allies now and say, ah, well, why are you being so kind to the Russians? That, 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 we had that debate. You know, we, they asked us this question back in 2015, and we told them to sit down and shut up. What a quagmire it's been for Russia and Syria. As yeah, there, that's the, Obama called for the, for the people out there who didn't get your reference. Obama dismissed any concerns about the Russian military buildup in Syria by saying Putin's in a quagmire. We don't have to worry about it. So if the big intellectual construct for the Obama-Biden administration, and now the Biden administration, which in a way could have the same name because in a way it's intellectually an extension of the Obama team, a lot of the same officials are in key places. The early negotiators of the JCPOA, Jake Sullivan and Bill Burns are now at the NSC and at CIA. If that was the big intellectual construct, JCPOA, the Trump administration took power and their big play, their big accomplishments, the Abraham Accords. Now, after early on dismissing the Abraham Accords, the uh, Biden team seems to have picked it up, but do they understand it in similar ways? What do they think of when they uh, say Abraham Accords and how did how did the Trump team conceive of it? Well, the Biden administration has picked up uh, what they've really picked up is Saudi-Israeli normalization, and uh, um, I think that's extremely interesting what happened. Of course, when the Biden administration came in, they originally wouldn't say they famously wouldn't say the words Abraham Accords. They they um, they dismissed them. Um, they they found the Abraham Accords uh, to be embarrassing to them because I you remember that uh, John Kerry back when he was Secretary of State he famously said that there was no way to have peace agreements between Israel and other Arab states if there wasn't first a peace agreement with the Palestinians the Palestinian issue was always the top of the agenda with Israel as far as the um, the Obama administration was concerned so what Trump did proved them wrong and proved them wrong in real time uh, uh, and, and in a very big way 
But also, the Abraham Accords in the Trump view was the beginning of an effort to put together a regional coalition against Iran. The Biden administration does not want a regional co- to, to be the leader of a regional coalition against Iran. They were against Trump's maximum pressure program, and they don't want the normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia to be part of that. What they find is that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel, he's interested in normalization with Saudi Arabia. The Saudis are now open to the, que- the question. It's very popular in the United States and on, 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 on both sides of the aisle. Um, so the Biden administration has figured out that they can go ahead and, and, and push this uh, diplomatically, without much cost to themselves, it's no one's going to oppose them. Everyone says it's, they're, they're for it. Um, I think what they're going to find out at the end of the road here, which I mean, end of the road between now and November 2024, is that there will be no Israeli-Saudi normalization. That's one of the things that I think I took away from my my trip to to Saudi Arabia. The Saudi the Saudis all of our uh, Saudi interlocutors uh, people at the higher levels of the government were um, putting the brakes on the um, the excitement. There's been a lot of talk about um, normalization quickly uh, during the during this term of the of the Biden administration. I think the Saudis were putting the the brakes on that. So it's kind of a wonderful thing for the Biden administration because they're about to make, a, if the press reports are to be believed, there's a new deal with Iran on the nuclear question whereby the Iranians will restrict their uh, enrichment activities in return for release of frozen funds around the world, uh, billions of dollars the United States is going to pour into Iranian coffers. That, of course, is going to lead to a lot of criticism of the administration, particularly from the pro-Israel community. Uh, and so this is a nice counter to say, no, we're not abandoning Israel. We're not abandoning our allies in general. In fact, we're trying to work so that our allies can cooperate more together, um, Israel and Saudi Arabia. And then when it doesn't happen at the end of the road uh, in, in November 2024, the administration will turn around and it will blame the Saudis because it's very good at that. This, uh, the, at, at blaming the Saudis. And it will also blame Netanyahu because one of the reasons that it, we won't have it in 2024 is there won't be agreement between or among the Saudis, the Americans, and the Israelis about the Palestinian question. Um, and the, the administration or its, it, its surrogates in the media will say, ah, that's because there's an extremist government in Jerusalem, uh, which, which won't make the proper concessions on the, on the Palestinian question. So between the Saudis moving too slowly and the extremism, quote-unquote, in, in Jerusalem, this uh, lack of quick success will be placed on the, at the doorstep of others. What incentive do the Saudis have to gift Joe Biden this crown jewel of diplomatic achievement so long as he not only slaps them around publicly, but also refuses to engage in a containment policy on Iran. Just the opposite if the reports that you just described are accurate. Yeah, I don't think they have any uh, any interest. That's my read. Nobody said that in Saudi Arabia. Uh, they were careful not to say that, uh, I think. So this is just my analysis. I uh, um, They didn't express any overt hostility at all to the Biden administration, but they wouldn't because you know, America's their big ally. Um, but I, I don't think they have any interest in doing that. One can make an argument that they do have an interest in, in the, their, their arguments that are being made out there uh, that it needs to be done quickly. 
because if it, if it if it's seen to be only a Republican project like the Abraham Accords, then the uh, then the then the Democrats will sabotage. But if it's done on a, a Democratic timetable, the the Republicans uh, are so in favor of it on its merits that they will that they will support it, and so it will have sustainability and it will improve. Uh, you know, it'll be a great way to for the Saudis to improve their relations with the Biden administration. I, I suspect that none of that will have any purchase on them. Not not because they don't want to help. Not if if everything else was equal, then they would. Then I think they would go ahead and listen to those arguments. But they have a they have a much bigger agenda, the Saudis, with the United States than uh, than than simply normalization with Israel. And what's on offer in this JCPOA 2.0? As I understand it, there are legal requirements related to Congress if a new deal of sorts is struck, which is why I presume the administration would sell any arrangement as a continuation of the old. Is it uh, a longer and stronger deal, as we were told uh, before Joe Biden took office, or is it something fundamentally different? Uh, well, we have to wait and see. I've only We've only seen press reports that haven't really fully characterized it. My guess is what, what it'll end up being is an arrangement, an understanding rather than a, uh, than a real hard and fast deal that will have to be taken to Congress. Uh, you know, the, the president can release funds uh, for, without giving any reason other than he sees a national security imperative in, uh, in doing so. Uh, so he can, he, can, he can issue a waiver to make this happen. There'll, there'll, be, there'll be some kind of arrangement. That's what I suspect, but we have to wait and see. And there already is an informal tacit understanding, it seems to me, in that we're not really enforcing sanctions on the Iranians who are exporting their oil to the Chinese, for example. And in return, seemingly the Iranians have put some brakes on the final steps of a nuclear weapons program, which might be an unspoken, but nonetheless sort of understood Washington, Tehran arrangement of sorts, no? Right. Your guess is as good as mine. I think there is a, there is a kind of informal understanding, whether it's tacit or explicit is not, uh, is not clear to me. What is the Saudi relationship like with the other Gulf actors? Everyone thinks of it as the the big brother in a way. So the Saudis go, the others sort of follow, they create a slipstream. Is that a good way of thinking of them? Or is there more competition, even rivalry in some direction or, or now? Well, a few years ago, I mean, you had, the, of course, the big split between Saudi Arabia and the UAE on one hand and, and the Qataris on the other. Um, that's now a thing of the past. There's always uh, there's always distrust uh, between uh, the Qataris and the and their Gulf brethren. One of the more interesting things is the shift between uh, that's taken place in the last couple of years between Saudi Arabia and the UAE. They seem to be marching in lockstep for a few years. Um, both were very hostile to the Turks. Uh, both were hostile to Qatar. And now, uh, now all the cards have been reshuffled. I think primarily because of American policy toward Iran. This has been going on for a long time, not simply under the Obama and Biden administrations, but the Obama and Biden administrations they embody the movement in the direction of Iran more than anyone else. What's happened is the UAE has got a kind of, um, I'm, I'm calling it the Venice strategy, the Venetian strategy. They're, the UAE is okay with everyone. They're okay with Iran. They're okay with Russia. They're okay with China. They're okay with the Turks. They uh, made themselves a kind of uh, neutral and are friends with everyone and trying to make money with everyone. Um, and they've moved very far compared to anyone else in the region toward the Chinese. 
the, and uh, uh, we saw that with the you know the Chinese were building a base uh, in the UAE. The Biden administration twisted their arm and forced them to stop. Uh, but uh, the the Chinese have a lot of interests around uh, the UAE that could turn into bases you know, around UAE ports that could turn into bases very quickly. As a result of the Chinese influence in the region in the UAE. Uh, the F-35 deal, that was a deal for $23 billion that was, uh, um, that was lost to the United States. Could be revived, but it's not been formally um, ended, but, uh, but at the moment it seems like it's over. The Saudis are not, uh, are not as happy. The Saudis are also doing much more business with the, with the Chinese than they have in the past. And I think they're sending a clear message to Washington. As I, as I mentioned, you get first right of refusal, but I, I'm not, if I need something to build my economy uh, or to protect myself, I'll go to the Chinese if I have no other choice or if it's attractive to me uh, after giving you, you know, as I said, first right of refusal. But the, I think the Saudis are not completely comfortable with the UAE, how far the UAE has gone toward China. I don't think that they have given a wink and a nod to the UAE and said, We'd like you to do this. I think the Saudis, like you said, see themselves as the big brother. Maybe everyone else doesn't want to see them that way, but they see themselves as sort of the, not just the custodian of the two holy mosques, but the custodians of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and they don't want, uh, you know, to have a huge fight between, uh, big contest between China and the United States because of a decision made by the UAE. Yeah, as Angela Merkel once put it, everyone calls for leadership, but not everyone wants to be led, <laughs> which I think is probably a truism. Before we turn to China, did you hear anything about the Houthis, Yemen, the campaign? What's going on there? Well, just that the 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 agreement brokered by the Chinese between the Iranians and the and the Saudis uh, that was supposed to end attacks on Saudi Arabia from uh, from Yemen. Uh, and everyone there is in a wait, watch, and see mode to see what's going to happen. That's, uh, I think, the $64,000 question. I read the Chinese brokering of the normalization as basically, in the end, a, an acknowledgement of Iran's breakout, their success. They are hardly isolated. They now have a military relationship with the Russians. They're co-producing some rudimentary drones on Russian territory, but it's on Russian soil. And that must give Jerusalem headaches, given that anything on Russian territory is off limits for them. They have uh, economic relationship with the Chinese. They've managed to build out their positions of power in the Arab world. Hezbollah has grown stronger and is looming over Israel and on and on and on. There's the Houthi issue we just described. And so the Saudis looking around thought to themselves, if the American security guarantee isn't worth much, then uh, we need to find another way to address our own security problems, and that might mean hedging toward China. I'm not sure how much the Chinese can actually hold the balance or mediate between two such arch rivals and adversaries, but the Saudis going to Beijing is as much as anything a signal to Washington that um, they are incredibly frustrated because they could have had Iraq, the U.S. even, broker a deal if they'd wanted to. And given what you described earlier on the Democratic Party, the Biden, Obama Biden worldview and goals for the Middle East, it would have fit perfectly into their vision for the region. Brokering normalization would have been something they would have trumpeted um, for the next year and a half heading into re-election. Is that all more or less the way you read it? Or how should we think about uh, the normalization itself? I think that the Saudis did make a decision to give this to the Chinese. They didn't have to do it. 
but they did truly feel exposed. They do, I, I think, truly feel that the United States is not deterring the, the, the Iranians and that they thought, well, let's test out the Chinese and see if they can, uh, if they can do it. I mean, the, 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 the priority of the, of the crown prince is to develop the economy. Developing the economy means he wants peace and stability. Um, and uh, he'll, he'll, he'll try to find a way, whatever way possible, to make that happen. If I look at it from Beijing's point of view, I think originally they came into the Middle East primarily through the Iranian network. But they increasingly desire a valuable relationship with the, with the Gulf states, in particular Saudi Arabia and the UAE, Qataris as well. They have their own economic problems, the Chinese, and they realize that they, as they are decoupling from the United States, and, as, and I don't think there'll be a complete decoupling of the economies, but there'll be certain sectors like the, you know, the high-tech sector where there'll be a disentanglement or whatever word you want to use for it. And they want investment, dollar investment, in their high-tech sector in particular. Not only, but let's, but let's uh, at the forefront of their thinking. And they look around the world and they say, where are there opportunities to find investors who can pour lots of dollars into, uh, into our economy, especially when the United States is, is not going to be doing that. And there's really only one place in the world, and that's the, that's the Gulf. The way to, to conceptualize what the Chinese are doing there is they have allied themselves with the most disruptive, threatening element in the system in the Gulf, that is the Iranians, in order to bring the whole system toward them. And that means then that they're, they're that they're playing both sides. That in a in a way, not to hijack the conversation, is the Chinese approach to Europe too. They've allied themselves with the most disruptive actor in Europe, in the hopes of if Russia should prove successful, cowing the others into hedging towards China as a balancer of sorts or as a peacemaker. We tried the American way, the aggressive way. That didn't work. So come talk to us and we can help you manage your Russia problem. That's for sure, I think, the message the Chinese are trying to put in place for Europe. I find, speaking of Europe and their attitude toward the Middle East, one of the frustrations in a lot of the think tank publications and just in conversations with European officials is that they look at Chinese activity in the Middle East and they see mostly economic interests. And they believe, and for people who tend to abjure colonialism and don't miss an opportunity to criticize their own history and even adapt sort of this this Orientalist uh, critique of the West. They very quickly uh, kind of slide into uh, an argument where they say the Chinese have economic interests and we can explain their political interests to them and work with them um, to help them act as a responsible stakeholder to to use that phrase again. Is, that, is that still the is that still the attitude in Europe? Yes, for sure. Um, uh. That is that is definitely an attitude that there's. Uh, a potential and an opportunity to work with the Chinese to help um, create a, a, a better and more stable uh, Middle East. It's definitely- I think that's even, crazy. Even an attitude that you see on, on the Ukraine conflict because the Russians uh, you know, have, have gone in and the Chinese have offered to play some sort of mediating role. And there's a lot of sort of contemplative looks in Europe, but how do we how do we vector the Chinese into a direction to create <laughs> they, They're really looking peace. for European tutelage. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. That's, I, I think no, that's how, I, I that's think how the Chinese read their histories. They want nothing more than the Europeans to tell them. Yeah, please come explain because we're, we're, how, we're, how, uh, we're bring some very, opium along the, not, along yeah. the way and uh, we'll really, we'll really, we'll just redo this entire 2.0 uh, Chinese vassalage. Yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's insane. And there's, a, by the way, that attitude exists in our, on over here too in the United States. I, mean, I think the, the Biden administration, I don't know that it would say that we're, we're going we're gonna to vector the Chinese, but I don't think that they feel as threatened by China in the Middle East as, as I believe they should feel. Um, the, we, you started with that question about the, how, they, you know, how they reacted, their talking points reacting to the Chinese brokered deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia, that they said, oh, we don't, it's not about China, this is good for the region, it's good for us. You know, I mentioned that uh, speaking to the person in government who said that the Saudis are like our needy girl, like your needy girlfriend. The sense that they have is that we have our allies in our pocket because uh, of our military power and that the Chinese don't have anything like our military power in the Middle East and they won't for another decade, uh, maybe even longer. China's, China doesn't even have a single ally really in the world where it really provides security. So uh, because we are the only shop in town that can provide security the way we do, we've got them locked up. And therefore, we don't have to worry about the, the, what the Chinese are doing. I think that that is incredibly short-sighted. And I've been hearing, you know, I, I've been tracking this, as you know. We, You and I started doing this together a few years ago, looking at all the arguments about China and looking at what China was doing in the Middle East. And it, originally it was, oh, China only has uh, economic interests in the Middle East. It will never, ever get involved in military affairs. Then it starts becoming... Uh, it didn't just start, it already was, but it, it increased its uh, uh, effort to sell missiles and drones, which is the basis of Iranian conventional power. And now it's, the, it's selling drones to the UAE and to Saudi Arabia, and it's selling missiles to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and so it's holding the balance, the military balance, because we won't sell those things to our allies. Our allies have nowhere else to go but China for that. So China is holding the balance in those weapon systems, which are the cutting edge of uh, warfare today. Then the people who think there's no threat from China absorb that, and they say, yeah, but they'll never get involved in the high politics. They'll never, they'll never be a, uh, you know, a power arbiter because that'll cause them problems. And then here they are behaving as a power arbiter between Saudi Arabia and, and Iran. And then they say, yeah, well, they're not really, they didn't really play that role. That was kind of handed to them. They ran in front of the parade and pretended to lead it. And so, so there's always an explanation as to why what we're seeing is not what's actually happening. And if we, it, and if it is what's actually happening, it's really not, and, and it's really not very significant, and and it, and it will never go beyond this. But every year, a new role for China drops, and they're clearly becoming much more influential on every level, uh, and they're telling all of their interlocutors that we're coming in like gangbusters. We're going to be the new boy in town. The, the United States is on the way out. They're finished. That's their message, their explicit message, if you listen to what they're, they're saying. I think we ought to take it seriously. That's what we should have learned from Putin when he, wrote, when he wrote a treatise saying that Ukraine is part of Russia. We should have listened to that. Part of the issue is that our adversaries, the Russians and the Chinese, the Iranians, DPRK, Venezuelans, Cubans, name them, they believe in trying to win competitions or win conflicts because... 
Um, they're also disruptors. It's an American built international order and they'd like to move to something different. Whereas we are content to preserve the status quo because again, it's our order. And so we're constantly just trying to resolve any conflicts, put out and douse any flames that burst up here or there. And so that basically means that the Chinese are able to, um, first of all, maybe backing up, I think in the case of Russia and Europe, Putin went to war thinking and knowing that if he wanted a diplomatic off-ramp, the West would provide it to him. So even if the war goes poorly at some point, he can get into a negotiation. It wouldn't be rejected by the West who would then right. insist on defeating him. And in the case of the Middle East, I think the Chinese look at this and they allow us to continue in this fantasy that they only have economic interests. They build up positions of strength. They begin to establish ports and all the rest. It's latent military power. And then at some point in the future, they could flip the switch if they like to confuse metaphors. And suddenly we would turn around and see we're entirely outmaneuvered. To give you one example, just last month, or maybe it was the month before, I was in Europe at a major forum and I spoke to a very senior British official. And uh, I described- uh, uh, This is the queen? I described, <laughs> the queen is dead, Mike. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Long live the king. Ah. Um, but I told King Charles that- um, I still haven't adjusted to, the, oh, to, yeah. to the, the reign of Charles. I gotta get that through my head. That um, speaking to this very senior British official who actually um, had to leave um, the event I was at to fly back to the coronation, that actually isn't a joke, um, and told me all about it. I was incredibly jealous, but setting all that aside, when I described the Chinese positions in Djibouti, which is threatening, you know, basically Suez Passage and that entire kind of maritime straits there. And then uh, the position the Chinese have built up in Gwadar in Pakistan, where they also have uh, rights, basing rights, that allow them to threaten the Straits of Hormuz. He said, you know, I visited that, that facility in Gwadar and it's nothing but tumbleweeds with one uh, Chinese official snoozing away or military guard at a rickety outpost. So it's not all that meaningful. And I think that that attitude is dangerous because it means that we could be totally asleep at the, the wheel when all of a sudden we wake up to Happy Panda having turned into a pretty angry and ferocious opponent. And, and and it's this strategic territory uh, um, is used for um, anti-access aerial uh, area denial. It's like saying those those islands that the Chinese are building in the South China Sea they're artificial islands and they're really, there's really nothing there. Yeah, there's nothing there except the the, the ability to project power uh, throughout the whole throughout the whole area when they decide they want to project the power. And no matter no matter what. Uh, the Chinese do, we're always prepared to then just begin a negotiation as if nothing happened. It's a little bit like in the in the South China Sea, this is an area of expertise of mine, but I, I read about us running these freedom of navigation uh, operations where we sail ships through these these reefs that are supposedly now, um, you know, Chinese territory according to the Chinese nine dash line and they've militarized them and so forth. And we pat ourselves on the back and say, we showed them that we'll sail anywhere in the world but they continue militarizing and building up these missile bases and radar installations and all the rest. And I'd have to imagine that a military man would tell you the balance of power is shifting towards the Chinese because we might be sailing through, but they're actually permanently militarizing that region. And so again, I think not to take this too far, but the country that really perfected this is, is the DPRK. They renegotiate Yongbyong, I feel like every five years and we go back to the table and will you blow up this cooling tower or will you, will you cease and desist in this area of your nuclear weapons program? And they say yes. And then we give them something or we open Quezon or whatever it might be. And then we do it again five years later. And I think 
um, the Russians watch this and the, uh, the, the Chinese watch this and they see that they can, they can basically, um, they can basically always have the West for negotiation and, and no, no line is really too steep. No step is too far for that. There's no red line. Yeah. The, the, uh, Iranian, you just, the, when you talked about the DP, DPRK, I'm sure that the Iranian study, the DPRK, D, I can't say that DPRK, uh, case very carefully. And they're just, uh, they're, they're just mimicking it. Um, so the, you know, we're going to, and we're, we're showing the Iranians that we'll buy that donkey over and over and over again. Well, this is a really positive episode that I've watched. Peter, let's not, that was such a negative note. Let's not, let's not end this on that. Let's, let's end with something positive. Let's talk about ice cream. (laughs) How's the ice cream in Saudi Arabia? How's the alcohol in Saudi Arabia? I had some, I had no alcohol, but I did have some really good gelato. I did actually. Funny you should mention that. Mm. Gelato's great. Go to Saudi Arabia for gelato. Thanks for listening to this edition of Counterbalance. We're back in action. Please like and subscribe if you enjoyed today's conversation. And we will see you soon at a podcast near you. Bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs>